The Guardian. Simon Armitage has been writing smart, witty, stark poetry for over 30 years now, observing, watching, commenting on Britain and British people. Much of his work is rooted in the north of England, where he still lives, keeping his distance from the cultural and literary establishment. But he's now something of a national treasure with a CBE to prove it. But I wonder, is being a poet a thankless task? Where is poetry now? Is it slowly being suffocated by a lack of interest, and a lack of money. It's a cliche to say that modern poetry isn't valued, but I wonder whether it's true. To find out, we conducted a pretty unscientific poll. I think some people find it really hard to access. I think people think yeah. it's a bit, uh, you're reading too many things into something that's not actually got very much. People these days value Twitter. I mean, you know, that's putting so much into so little. So why, why do people value poetry? If only Twitter was more poetic, though, eh? Cool. A lot of people say poetry is sort of a dying thing. Do you think down here in London it is? Maybe, yeah. It's no up in Scotland and Edinburgh and Gaelic poetry is starting to come in as so well. So sort of woven into the fabric of people's yes, lives in Scotland? Yes, yes. You're still a poetic nation? Yes, definitely. You got any poetry books at home? Yeah, I bought my girlfriend a book of love poems. Did you? Yeah. Did it have the desired effect? Uh, probably did. Did what I required. So poetry has its uses? It does have its uses. I went to a Morrissey concert. There's a poster saying the nation's unofficial poet laureate and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Maybe the best poetry in the contemporary world is in good lyrics. Yeah. Keats and Yeats are on your side <laughs> yeah. all those things. Yeah. I will be at the bar with my head on the bar. I am the son and heir of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. There you are. That's poetry. Can you quote me a bit of a poem? Um, yes. <laughs> something, something beyond the yonder breaks. It is the eastern... I'm trying to do Shakespeare here, by the way. Okay. My harps in the highlands, my heart is not here. My heart's in the highlands, are chasing the deer, are chasing the wild deer and following the roe. My heart's in the highlands wherever I go. Um, I can't think of anything. Come on, someone give me something. Make me sound smart. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by men in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Something, jeez. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Simon Armitage, do you go along with the idea that not nearly enough people know about poetry, let alone value it? That's a difficult one, because if everybody sitting on the bus or the tube in the morning was reading a book of poems, I don't think I would be writing it, and I don't think... I would value it particularly. There's something about poetry which is oppositional and it's a form of dissent. I mean, even in its physical form, you know, it doesn't reach the right-hand margin, it doesn't reach the bottom of the page. Uh, there's something a little bit obstinate about it and I think it's the, the, the literary equivalent of the, of the awkward squad. So, um, you know, there there is simply a level beyond which uh, it, it cannot go. Having said that... Is that to say that... Do you mean, therefore, that if everyone was reading poetry on the tube in the morning, it would be the poetic equivalent of Coldplay or something? I mean, it, that, it, that's it, what you mean? It, I think what it I mean is that it, would, it wouldn't be poetry. Um, you know, poetry's always had um, a complex relationship with, with language, and um, it's alternative, it's independent, 
it, it is simply and cannot be a mainstream art form. I mean, for example, um, it requires concentration. That doesn't appeal to everybody. Uh, not everybody wants to look at these little bits of squirreled away language and focus on them. Um, so, I, it, it, but at the same time, you know, because it's the thing I, I value uh, almost more than anything, I do believe there is a huge amount of fantastically good writing out there which goes unregarded and in some cases unread. So in that sense, it could do with a bit more attention, whatever it would take to shine light on the kind of poetry you, you mentioned there. Yeah, any, any, any um, sort of oxygen uh, that can find its way through uh, helps poetry you know, burn a little brighter, but it, it's never going to be a, a great big conflagration. I want to ask you whether you think that the way the world is going as regards our means of communication is making poetry a slightly awkward place in the culture even more awkward. I mean, you've said yourself that poetry is in itself an opposition, mm. particularly to mass communication, the way we're continually fed information. Mm. I mean, is that a point that relates specifically to the, you know, the modern age and a world in which online well, communication in particular is so rooted in people's lives that somehow it's hard finding space for poetry and all that? Well, you would imagine so, wouldn't you? Um, but actually, I think what's happened is that um, poetry has asserted its value in that world. Um, you know, we, we can sometimes feel as if we're living in the age of over-communication and over-information and over-stimulus. And, you know, poetry, by contrast, is one person saying something that they've thought about and that they really mean uh, in a considered way. It's not the first thing that comes into their head and it's not the first thing that comes out of their mouth. And I think, in, in that world which I've just described... A lot of people have turned to poetry to, you know, to, to, to find that stillness and that calmness and that, that solidity of, of thought. So uh, you might have imagined a number of years ago at the advent of the internet that there would be no place for poetry. But actually, I think people have, have really found value in it as an alternative to that. Do people get the same experience if they, uh, as most people do, if they go on a sort of uh, off-the-cuff sort of Google journey, you mm. know, and people just take it snippets of information, and they alight on one of your poems, and in the middle of uh, flipping between sources of information, they find one of your poems and read it online. Uh, I are they getting not, this... because that would mean that they're not paying any royalties. Of course, but I know for a fact that some of it is out there for, for, for good or ill. <laughs> are they getting the same experience as if they pick up a book and read it? Um, I think they're getting a similar experience. Um but there have been a lot of discussions recently about uh, the extent to which you know books in general will survive. Um, you know, I think Amazon are now selling more e-books uh, than they are hard copies printed on on paper. But my suspicion is that that poetry books will be around for a long time, and I think that's because people appreciate them as physical works of art. Um, all my experience and recollection of poetry is to do with uh, the, the, the shape and layout of a poem on the page within a book and its smell and its heft and its cover, uh, you know, its, its, its physical properties as, as well as its, um, you know, as, uh, as, as well as what, what the actual poem's saying. Are so, you on the Kindle? Is your poetry available on the Kindle? It is. I didn't know it was until uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was, um, what do they call it? 
ego surfing. <laughs> on Googling the, yourself. Yeah, on the internet, and uh, up, up, up they popped. So, um, yeah, obviously, you know, you will still experience the language and the ideas. Um, but I, I do think people who, certainly people who buy poetry, actually buy an art object in a book. And I, I, I don't know whether I'm just naive or superstitious about that, but I think that will carry on. Caroline Duffy, the current poet laureate, recently said that Twitter and yeah. text messages, which is the ultimate distracted, very rapid form of communication, she thought they might be or were to poetry's advantage. She said, we've got to realise that the Facebook generation is the future, and oddly enough, poetry is the perfect form for them. Mm. How do you feel about that? The idea that you know people say text messages are like haikus and all that kind of stuff. Well, young people are always being accused of, um, you know, not reading and not taking part in literature and, and not taking part in language. But I think Caroline's point might be that they absolutely are. You know, they're uh, they're very adept and practiced at um, at written communication. I would probably draw the line at saying that any old text and any old email is poetry. I think you certainly could write a poem. Uh, using text language and using email language. In fact, people have done. But the the process of writing a poem means sitting down yeah. and considering language and considering thought. You've got to step back, haven't you? you From have. that world in which your thumb's going at a 1,000 miles an hour, you, could you certainly, have to be yeah, somewhere different. You could, you could use that media to create poetry, but the actual cognitive process of, of creating it would be slightly different. Right. But you, you retain your optimism, do you? I mean, there's a book recently, I don't know whether you're aware of this, called The Shallows, which says that that the way that we communicate now is rendering us increasingly uh, incapable of reflection and contemplation, hmm. which means that the, the act of either writing or appreciating a poem is quite sort of imperiled, really. Yeah, I, I think that is a worry. Uh, but maybe, you know, poetry, just by the fact that it exists, is a, is a stay against that. Maybe that's one of the jobs it's doing at the moment, is a sort of last line of defence. There's no evidence in the history of human consciousness to say that poetry will disappear. It's utterly unkillable. You know, it's been there since the very first grunt, uh, and it's, it's still around today. Seamus Heaney once said something along the lines of it being an anthropological necessity, and I didn't quite know what he meant when, when, when that re- remark started to be circulating but I, I can see that as long as there are people and people speak to each other there will be another form of communication which could be considered poetry, you know, language in an intense form and I, I just think it will always be there Going back right to the start of your life as a poet um, I mean, is it right to picture you in a classroom and poetry is being taught as it still is uh, and something in you was awakened by hearing the poetry of Ted Hughes. That's right. Isn't yeah. It? What did it? Can you remember the poem? I, only because I share this experience. I didn't like Ted Hughes at all. Yeah. So what was the poem, and what did it do to you? Well, there were a number of poems put there in front of us. I would have been what fourteen or fifteen. It was you know what the old old level. Yeah. Um, so I think the first poem was probably Bayonet Charge. Um, Hughes was obsessed with the First World War. And uh, he's describing this moment where a guy comes out of the trenches, goes over the top and starts running towards the enemy. And there's a line in the poem which is, it's something like, in what moment of the, of the stars and nations was he the hand pointing at that moment? And uh, time seemed to stop for me. That's what happened. I couldn't get away from that image and the way that time had stopped for the soldier. Time had stopped for me as the reader as well. 
Um, so the whole universe was spinning round, but as a reader, I was there with the poem, just in that very sort of stilled moment. And I, I'm sure at that point I thought, this is the stuff for me. Not that I wanted to write it, but I wanted to read it. I didn't know that the world was such an interesting place. I didn't know that you could do that with language. I mean, language is incredible. It is only 26 letters. Um, you know, usually black marks on a white page, but you put them in the right order and you can make something miraculous happen to somebody thousands of miles away. You can ignite their brain in silence. Uh, and that's what had happened to me. Uh, and then there, there were the animal poems as well, you know, pigs, pike, uh, foxes, horses. Uh, I wasn't really an animal person, you know, despite living in a sort of semi-rural environment, but I could smell these animals. Uh, they, they got up and they walked around. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd recreated, he'd brought them back to life. And I, I thought that was like a little act of, of magic, and I, I wanted to keep on experiencing that. It's a magnificent advert for the teaching of poetry in schools, isn't it? And yet... There is that uh, common assumption that if you teach someone something in school, it sort of kills its appeal. Mm. But your experience suggests that it's it's a brilliant and vital thing that poetry is taught to kids. Well, what what you say was by and large true for me. You know, every other taught subject <laughs> uh, was a kind of small murder. Um, on the other hand, I didn't want to go on and study English because I thought of it as a hobby right. uh, and a passion, and I didn't want to approach it you know, formally, and that probably would have killed it for me. Um, so I went on to do a geography degree. Uh, that's what I wanted to ask you. Oh, OK. Yeah. You must be the only successful poet. I mean, I don't associate poets with geography yeah. for some reason. It just, I mean, I'm being unfair to geographers perhaps here, but it mm. strikes me as probably the least high-flown, least romantic academic discipline there is. I associate it with floating weights down rivers and doing pedestrian counts and things like that. I can't like think that. of anything more romantic than floating a weight down a river. Did you come to regret doing a, taking a geography degree or were you an, a happy geographer? I think when I went to uh, college, I was um, you know, a romantic geographer. I, I was going to learn all the capitals uh, of, of, of the countries of the world. I was going to um, you know, do little investigations into GDP and uh, probably go on an expedition to Antarctica, maybe even discover a new place. It was all that kind of stuff. I got there, I found out that it was very maths-based, you know, that uh, geography had, in fact, moved on since 1890. Um, nevertheless, the one thing that you used to say about a geography degree was that uh, you came out um, sort of jack-of-all-trades and master of none, and I, I thought it was a very uh, sort of thorough grounding. I, I, I do feel as if I got... Um, a kind of smattering of everything. I studied oceanography. I studied, uh, you know, uh, third world development. Uh, I know quite a lot about whales, the, the country and the uh, and, 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 and the mammals. Um, so I, no, I don't, I don't, I don't regret it at all. And actually, I got an invitation um, uh, a couple of months ago to be uh, to become uh, a member of the National Geographic Society or the National. Geographical Society, I can't remember. So I was, I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty pleased about that. And, and I, also in, in the writing, um, a lot of my poems are, are journeys and expeditions. Um, so there, there, there is definitely a, a connection for me. I, I uphold the cause of geography. How, how often were you writing poetry as a geography undergraduate? Um, I was dabbling. Right. Um, I was reading a lot of poetry. 
Uh, I was reading more poetry books than geography books. Um, and every now and again I'd be scribbling away. But it wasn't really until I'd finished my degree that I started going to some writing workshops with the, you know, the, the proper ambition of, of getting things published. Um, when I went back in preparation for this interview mm. to your Faber anthology, Selected Poetry, one thing that struck me about it was uh, the regular appearance of violence and mm. murder. I mean, Hitcher has the lines, I let him have it on the top road out of Harrogate, one with the head, then six times with the crook lock in the face and didn't even swerve. There's a poem called Sagitta, have I pronounced that correctly? From nowhere and nothing, a man was slashed in the face with a Stanley knife one evening. Oh, yeah. This is uh, a poem about the, the constellation of uh, Sagittarius. Ah, OK. Um, where do those images come from? You worked for a while as a probation officer. Is there some of that in there? I think there definitely is. Um, I also think that I, I grew up in, in quite a sort of violent generation. You know, you think back to the... I think of the 70s of being violent times. Um, you know, in towns, in cities, at football matches. I just remember people scrapping all the time, and at school as well. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, then I, I you know, went on to be a probation officer in Greater Manchester and obviously confronted on a, on a daily basis with either violence itself or images of violence or evidence of violence. And that certainly filtered through into the work. I suppose... Was it unsettling writing poems of that kind? Well, maybe I was coming to terms with it, I don't know. You know, um, doing the job during the day and then, you know, getting it out of my system or something at night or processing it in my own way. Um, you know, trying to put my own spin or my own take on on these experiences. I, I mean, I am interested in, in in violence and why people are violent to each other um, and I think that can be a real connective energy in a poem as well even when the poem's actually discussing uh, something else but yeah I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't shy from the fact that um, you know those first two or three books do have that that strand running through them how do you think Britain compares now I mean you're a few years older than me but I, mm. I completely share that sort of memory mm. of the 70s and the early 80s between football hooliganism and the things you'd see on telly, things like the Sweeney, there was the sort of birth of uh, of what sort of social realist drama yeah. on TV that was also very violent. A lot mm. of people getting punched and so on. And I wonder now how you think Britain compares. It doesn't. We still seem to be a quite an angry little island where well, you know people very often fly off the handle at each other. And it doesn't so feel as, as as physically violent. I mean, I I don't I don't witness it. I don't encounter it in in the way that I used to. You know, I I still go to. A lot of football. I spend a lot of time in cities. Uh, you know, in the evening, I'll, I'll be usually coming out of a poetry reading, uh, which can have its own sort of violence. But uh, I, 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 it might be to do with the life that I, I lead now. You know, the fact that I'm older and I, I know where to go and where not to go, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think psychologically, we're a more violent society. Uh, I think we're a crueler and more cynical place, and I think. You know, there are huge cracks in society and there is anger uh, between people. And, uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about this just coming out of those recent riots. Um, and however you might want to dismiss those riots as um, just sort of wanton hooliganism, um, people don't do that for no reason, you know. Um, if people think it's OK to kick a glass window in and, and go and get some training shoes, that comes from somewhere. 
Um, Where do you think it comes from? I think it's attitudinal. Uh, and I think it's fostered uh, both in the family and in the state. You buy the idea that somehow that's a reflection of the acquisitive people that a lot of us have become and that it's it speaks of a society that wants instant gratification and sod the consequences. I do, yeah. I don't, I don't think it comes out of nothing. Yeah. The poems that mention violence uh, are part of this, but then there are, there are plenty of other poems in which, uh, as with the poems about violence, it feels as if you're confronting the reader with a very blunt truth about the human condition. You're not shrinking from it. I mean, a lot of poetry is adorned and people use it sometimes as a, a comfort. And a lot of your poetry isn't like that. I mean, you write about old people nearing death in November and you say... It is time, John, this is the person to which you're talking in the poem, in their pasty bloodless smiles, in their slack breasts, their stunned brains and their boldness, and in us, John, we are almost these monsters. That's a very unsettling thing to write. I mean, you're stripping existence down to its mm. most unsettling essentials there. Well, I feel part of your mission as a poet, almost, to confront people with what life really is. I think there is a confrontative element, um, and there is a moment in that, poem that you're describing which is particularly designed to shock and that is that word monsters you know where I'm I'm describing the aging human body uh, as, as, a, as a monstrous thing but I'm trying to make the point that yeah it's, it's not some other species it's it's all of us at the same time I'm talking about a personal experience with a grandparent so I, I, I feel as if even below that that level of confrontation there's a, there's a, an elegiac aspect to that poem I, I think it's describing a bereavement it's often the bereavement that most of us encounter first of all yeah. you know, the loss of a grandparent but also these are thoughts that you know when human beings are confronted with something which uh, their most thought out rational response will be sort of warm and it'll be about common humanity one can't mm. deny also that when you pass a car accident part of you thinks thank god it isn't me Mm. Or that when you confront someone near death, probably part of you thinks, don't they look awful and all mm. that. And it's that's the point I'm making. Mm. That you're reminding people of thoughts that they don't necessarily want to be reminded that they have from time to time. Well, from time to time, that is the job of poetry, I suppose. And possibly the, the, the job of art, uh, you know, to, to dig beneath the the veneer uh, and, and the, the sort of barricades and the, the double glazing and the... Uh, you know, all, all all these kind of comforts and 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 stodge that that we exist in to to actually say in quite a stark way what it, what it is to be alive. Not all the poems are like that, but but certainly I I think that's part of the function of that poem. People like your spoken voice. It's fair to say. Do they? Mm. And yeah, I know because I've spoken to people who who. who who's liking for what you do, your voice is built into it. That's probably why I get asked to do voiceovers. Do you? Yeah. Have you done many? No, no. Any at all? No. I got asked to be the voice of Yorkshire Tea recently. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been quite a lucrative gig. Yeah, but I would have never worked again, would I? So. I don't know. Is it, is it, I'm not sure what Yorkshire Tea's ethics are like. They're probably part of some huge... No, I'm sure, I'm sure they're a fine tea. They're a fine tea. Um, Noel Gallagher drinks Yorkshire Tea. Does he? Takes it on tour with him. Yeah. But... To get back to the question, uh, you perform as well as a poet. I mean, that's part yeah. of your working life as a poet. Is the notion of performance there in the poems when you write them? I mean, someone like Philip mm. Larkin, clearly it wasn't. He hated performing mm. his poetry, right? Mm. A poet like Dylan Thomas, in many people's minds, was synonymous with the idea of mm. a reading and so on. So as you're writing it, 
Is it like dialogue in a play? Do you occasionally step back and recite it to see what it sounds like in your voice? Well, I, I think you're reciting it all the time in your inner ear, um, you know, whether you're actually vocalising it or not. Um, because I think the sound that a poem makes, even when it's just in print, is, is vital to its success. I mean, you talk about performance. Performance is a complicated word in, in poetry. It, it, you know, it, it arises passions when, when, when you mention it. To some people it means going on stage, trick cycling, sword swallowing, uh, getting an instant reaction from, from an audience. To other people it, it simply means reading the poems out loud. I guess I'm I'm in that latter category. If you if you if you come and see me read, it's just a guy with a book in his hand, staring at the book all the time. I rarely look up. Um, that that that's all it is. I, I sort of trust to the work, but I I do think it's it's part of the job. I think it's part of the task, the ancient task, of of being a poet. I like the idea of having to be accountable for yourself and your work in front of a, a li- live audience. 90% of the poems I write, I've never read out. Um, they exist as type. They work in silence in a book on the page. There are two or three things which I've written in my life which I only read out. I've never published them. They seem to work well in that atmosphere. Uh, and then there are you know, uh, you know, perhaps 20 or 30 other poems which I regularly read, and I, I just think that's because they, uh, they do the job uh, at, a, at a poetry reading. Do you suffer from that syndrome musicians do? There's a lovely bit in um, a Zadie Smith novel where she writes about Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits and he's standing on stage at the Albert Hall and he knows he's got to play Money for Nothing mm. and he's dying inside because he's played it so many times he hates it. Does that apply to any of your greatest hits? Greatest Poems hits. Poems you must do and yet you think, oh, not that again. You know? um, I mean, some of your poems you must have read close to a thousand times in public. I think right? thousands, probably a conservative estimate. Uh, there are poems which have been on the GCSE syllabus for long periods of time, which I've read in front of you know, gazillions of uh, GCSE students. Uh, and there have been times when my mouth's been moving and I've been thinking about you know, what, what I'm going to cook for tea or something like that. But uh, no, I, I, I've never had the, uh, the cigarette lighter moment um, yet. Um, I want to ask you about Seeing Stars, your latest collection, because it's not poetry, strictly speaking. It's a collection of sort of 39, I don't know what to call them, episodes, scenarios. I mean, they work as, I read it in exactly the same way that I read short stories. My brain was in the same place. But at the same time, calling it a, select, a collection of short stories isn't sufficient. Am I just getting too hung up about terminology here? I should stop worrying, maybe. But what, what, what is it? Well, they're poems, uh, John, and you should go back and read them as maybe poems. Maybe like prose. Um, well, po- po- poetry is, is a contract. Um, it's, it's an understanding between uh, reader and writer. It's impossible to say what a poem is, because as soon as you define it, somebody will go along and write something that breaks that rule. Um, you'll just have to take it from me uh, these these pieces were written under poetic conditions with poetic intentions and uh, you know that amount of love and care and agony that usually goes into a poem has gone into these pieces they certainly impersonate prose and I think part of their uh, <laughs> trick is to um, to keep asking the reader what it is that they're looking at um, uh, they're not prose poems because they don't line up on the right-hand margin, uh, which prose poems tend to do. 
but they are pieces of writing which exist in, in zero gravity. And uh, if, you, if you go back to that book and think, this is a poem, and read it again, you'll have a poetic experience. Okay. I'm not saying I didn't have a poetic experience, mm. but... It was they're different. I mean, I, I completely accept that they're 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 different. They're certainly different writing yeah. uh, for me in terms of style, and they're they're having a lot of fun and they're absurdist in in lots of it's ways. It's a tremendous work of imagination. I mean, the richness of it throughout its seventy five pages is incredible. The thing that you take on the voice of, among other things, a sperm whale, a panda. You pick up the footballer Dennis Bergkamp hitchhiking outside Calais, and I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the poem within it called The Experience, in which you mm. seem to go grave robbing with Richard Dawkins. S- the speaker in the poem goes grave robbing with somebody called Richard Dawkins. Let's let's be clear but about that. But there's an implication about something to do with finding out about the afterlife and so on in there, so I could be forgiven for thinking it is the Richard Dawkins. Well, you'd be more than forgiven. Uh, you know, b- b- poems set up these connections and uh, uh, in- in- invite you, uh, uh, you know, to... To take a little wander uh, along that route, uh, but you know, uh, they're, well, they're playful in that sense. Um, it, it is undeniably uh, Dennis Burkamp uh, yeah, who, who gets into the unless car. Unless there's two footballers on their way to international who, who, match, who both right? play f- for Arsenal yeah. and and are, uh, have a, a phobia about about flying. On they the other hand, like... he, he would claim that he never got into a, into a car with a with a poet. So they read like dreams. Was the genesis of any of these in dreams? Um, Picking up Dennis Bergkamp as a hitchhiker is a sort of thing that, um, in the sense that they're absurdist and mm. the logical connections don't necessarily work, but mm. nonetheless they're carried along in the way that dreams are. They're daydreams. Yeah. They're um, one thought tumbling over into the next, tripping off the next, uh, so that you know they, the, the, the dominoes keep falling over as, as the poem keeps progressing. I mean. I've said before that I absolutely mean these poems. Uh, I know they're fun and playful and all that kind of stuff, but um, I I, I would argue that there is a beating heart somewhere in all of those poems. It's usually contained within one line that I could point to and say, for me, this is the meaning and significance of the poem and this is what I'm trying trying to convey. Um, and they throw up a lot of uh, lot of other material, but um, you know that that was the approach um, to, to 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 couch, uh, the, you know, the the sort of point of the poem in an entertaining and engaging form. It's it's always you know that's always the difficulty facing any writer. Um, you know, no writer that I know has, has has ever said anything particularly new. It's the same old stuff that we're always saying, but we want to find new ways of doing it. Um. Let me ask you to finish, um, firstly, about the fact uh, that you live in Yorkshire. Um, and uh, Philip Larkin, a poet that I've written quite a lot about and sort of immersed myself in, uh, he stayed put in Hull and other places because he felt that being away from the sort of metropolitan noise was crucial to the poetic endeavour. Is there a sense in which you have stayed put in Yorkshire for that reason, that it's less distracting and you're away from the mainstream, given what you said about poetry Mm. having an awkward relationship to Mm. where the mass of culture sits? It's good to be at a distance, in other words. Um, there is definitely some of that. Um, you know, you can filter out a lot of the noise up there. I, I think originally I, I stayed in the north because it was convenient. You know, after I'd finished college, I didn't have a job. I started working as a volunteer. Uh, it was, it, you know, the, the kind of system up there was just easier for me to, to stay in than, than try and head off and, and make a life 
somewhere else. Uh, but as time has gone past, I've I, I realised um, it's not just a sort of comfort thing, uh, that it works for me up there. It is. It feels like a good vantage point uh, for, for writing. I also write a lot about that part of the world, I don't. I don't feel as if I'm its spokesperson. I. I don't want to wear the northern the, poet the cloth Simon cap. They always. Say. Uh, they do, and sometimes what they mean is that I am writing about the north, and that is a fair description of the work. But sometimes that's as if it's a sort of subdivision of poetry itself, and uh, you know that's when I get a bit arsy. Um, but I mean. You know, living in Yorkshire is not a bizarre choice. I know it might seem uh, sort of exotic and weird to some people, but but to me, it's it's completely normal. Also, you know, a lot of my um, touchstones and the, the the people who I read and believe in are from that neck of the woods. Such as? Well, I'm talking about um, you know Hockney, Harrison, Hughes, uh, Moore, Hepworth. Um, Alan Bennett, you know, but, but people, W.H. Auden, people who've had a, um, you know, a sound and really intense career, full of, full, of, full of integrity for their art, but have had the common touch as well. Right. You know, have, right. have wanted to communicate with people. Now, that, that's, the, that's the setting I see myself in. Uh, we referenced the 70s and the 80s a, a mm. bit before, and the 80s is referenced in your poetry as a kind of ugly time, you know, mm. as a poem which the Falklands War or form some of the backdrop and all that. Mm. And I wonder, living where you do, how you feel looking ahead through the next four or five years and what's going to happen to places very close to where you live, Wakefield and Huddersfield and mm. so on. Because the North-South divide's being talked about again now in a way that it wasn't nine mm. or ten years ago. Yeah, it has come up. Uh, I, I know that because I, I seem to be Radio 4's North-South divide correspondent. Uh, you know, the, every, every time something comes up on the North-South divide, they ring me up for a quote. Um, well, I, you know, I was saying earlier, those, those cracks seem to be, to be widening. Um, we're running out of cash. We're running out of ideas. Um, you know, the whole project looks a bit flimsy at the moment. And you see that when you walk down... The streets, you know, you see the charity shops moving in again. Uh, you see empty shopping malls. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm not a seer. They say it goes in cycles and phases, and maybe it does. But to me, there's a, a kind of whiff of rot about the whole thing. And I, I wonder if that applies generally, uh, you know, to the to the West. Maybe, maybe it's it's over. Will that find its way into your poetry? I would think so. Simon Artis, thank you very much. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.